Our scripture lesson this morning from chapter 29 of Jeremiah is printed in your worship bulletin. So follow along and hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles to whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let the prophets and the diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it's a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, says the Lord. For thus says the Lord, only when Babylon's 70 years are completed will I visit you. And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For surely I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans for your welfare and not your harm. To give you a future with hope. Then when you call upon me and come and pray to me, I will hear you. When you search for me, you will find me. If you seek me with all your heart, I will let you find me, says the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow before God in prayer. Let's pray. Almighty God, in the silence of this place, we long to hear your voice. We cannot live by bread alone, but only by every word that comes from your mouth. So feed us. Quench our thirst. Be to us more than ever, the guide of our lives. Hear this, our prayer, and all the secret prayers of our hearts that we bring to you through Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh. Amen. Well, quite clearly, in any organization, including a church, any change in leadership is potentially destabilizing. We all need balance in our lives, and the balance begins to be shaken between the old and the new, between the dependable and the uncertain, the familiar and the unfamiliar, the known and the unknown. Everything's broken up, shaken up. And while for some this leads to a sense of possibility and a sense of hope, and perhaps for others a sense of adventure, there are many for whom this is a source of great anxiety, and more often than not, we're caught in the middle of this between hope and expectation 
and anxiety. For me, at least, it's sometimes helpful at such times as these to review what I know and what I can count on so that I get the rock part straight, the foundation straight, the stable part straight before the rest of the instability comes into view. In the case of this particular transition in our church, which lies ahead of us with the change of the senior pastor, let me share a few things which I think are wonderful and true that we need to rely on. I'm convinced, for example, that you're going to love the transitional pastor who's going to be with uh, you as a congregation, Alan Poole. In fact, he's going to be here next Sunday participating in the service, I think, reading the scripture. Alan has had a powerful ministry for over 35 years in Durham, North Carolina, on the edge of the Duke University campus, uh, serving many people, especially students and faculty as they've come and gone, some of whom may in fact be here today or watching here today. Now, let me just say that as a University of Kentucky supporter, those, those folks in Durham need all the prayers they can get. <laughs> and he has been just the right person for all of them. So he's going to be here next Sunday, my last Sunday preaching, and there'll be an opportunity to meet him then, but also in the weeks that lie ahead. Uh, and he is a wonderful friend and colleague and ministry. And I know that God has brought him to the congregation. I also know that we have a great staff, a wonderful staff at the church, a great session, elders who are not elders because they're seeking power, but because they want to serve the whole congregation. This is their congregation, and they long for God's will to be done in the congregation. And we have a great pastor nominating committee. And I say we because the greatest joy in my life would be for the congregation to find a new pastor with whom you bond and who bonds with you and is truly your pastor. That is my joy. True, there could be other people who are on the pastor nominating committee. We are blessed in the congregation with an abundance of leadership. But I believe that the right folks are on the pastor nominating committee. They represent the congregation as a whole. They are diligent in their work on your behalf. They're as wise and prayerful about the needs of national as any could be. And you need to uphold them in your prayers. But God has placed them before us. Catherine Pippert, Glenn Schmidt, Joanna Manaranjan Chai, Rudy DeLeon, Joy Eckert, Peggy Lewis, Joel Velasco, Herma Williams. God bless them and may your prayers be added to their work as you watch the fruit of their labors. And then one more thing that I know is this, something we can absolutely count on as Presbyterians, and that is that our process is cumbersome. <laughs> you can count on it. You are going to need patience. It's required. So that even if the search committee found Mr. or Mrs. Wright tomorrow, the fact is there are Presbyterian hoops to pass through which take time to pass through. doesn't matter how quickly the committee moves. All of these other things have to happen as well. Some of it's Presbyterian, some of it's family-oriented. So the right pastor, he or she, may say, listen, my child is just finishing up high school or finishing up middle school or somewhere in the middle of something or other, and I want to make sure they finish well wherever they are. And it's the job of our nominating committee to say, yes, you need to finish well wherever you are. What will it take to do that? So it could be that new pastor comes next June, or it could be Christmas, or 
Well, only God knows the answer to that. And we need patience in the meantime for God to be at work, as I know God will be in all of our processes and all of the people who are involved along the way. There is one other thing that I know as well, and that is that this really is a year of transition. So it's not just a change of leadership. Other things will change as well along the way. And we're getting back from COVID, so there's a transition going on there. All kinds of transitions taking place in our society just now. And no one knows where we're actually going to end up with all these changes that are taking place. What I do know is this, though, that we can think of a time of transition as being on the road and not quite knowing where the destination is. And if we read our Bibles at all, we know that that story of being on the road is a story which fills the Scripture from the beginning to the end. And that is precisely where God wants to be, on the road with God's people. When we feel weak, giving us strength. When we feel hopeless, giving to us hope for a new future in which the same God, and on that we can depend, is leading and guiding us and bringing us incredibly into God's plans and purposes. So let's think a little bit about road trips in the pages of Scripture, integral to the story of Scripture. In fact, it begins right at the beginning with an unexpected and unwanted road trip in the story of Adam and Eve and the Garden of Eden. In this case, they're thrown out of the Garden of Eden. They're on a road trip they don't want, and they can't get back home again. But it's a road trip. And the strange thing is this, though they're not in the same intimate presence of God as they were when they started, God actually is with them, even on the outside of paradise, even on the outside of Eden. God is with them there, even when they've been booted out of the garden. Then there's the next road trip, beginning in Genesis chapter 12, and this is the road trip onto which a man called Abraham enters. God comes into his life and says, leave your home and go. Neighbor wants to say, where? God says, don't worry about that. I'll show you where. This is what the scripture says. The Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred. Leave the things which give you security behind. Go from your father's house to the land that I will show you. No map, no GPS. Just go to the land. Trust me that I will show you. No firm destination, no firm plan except in the mind of God. But what he does have are promises, and the promises flow from God to Abraham, on which he can rest his life, even though he doesn't know where the end of the journey will take him. God says this, I will make of you a great nation, a great people, a great family. I will bless you, make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Seven great promises, amazing promises on which Abram can bank his life. And the fact of the matter is this, that in the passing of time, I think this is actually one of the uh, greatest moments in understanding Scripture that we have, in the passing of time, Abram becomes the person God promises that he will be. It's actually going to be thousands of years that pass by, but unbelievably, Abraham, the one whom God says, I'm going to bless you, just leave your home, becomes the forefather by faith and by flesh of billions of Jews and Christians and Muslims. 
direct ancestor of our Lord Jesus himself. Those promises kept. So there's a story of Abraham, doesn't know the destination, but resting on the promises. God is at work in that journey. Then there's the story of the trip out of Egypt for the Hebrew slaves led by Moses. So maybe Abraham's 2,000 years or so, 1,900 years before the birth of Christ. Moses is around 1,400 years before the birth of Christ. The people of Israel have been in slavery for some 400 years. And under the leadership of Moses, they're set free. They're pulled out of slavery. And they're on their way. But this is not an easy hike that they're on. Very quickly, as soon as they leave, where they've been as slaves, imprisoned, and yet there's a sort of security in that that they feel. The obstacles arise in their way. There's a roadblock in their way, which we all know of. It's the Red Sea. I tend to think that the Red Sea is rather like traveling down to Richmond, Virginia on I-95 <laughs> when there's just no way around. I mean, that's it. You're in the traffic, and there is absolutely no escape from there. And there's an advancing army coming in behind you. Immediately after they are set free, this is what freedom is about. And then they get into the desert and they face a supply chain problem. There's no food, there's no water. Amazon and FedEx are nowhere in sight. And as in any good drama, on both occasions at the sea and in the desert, it looks as if all is lost. I mean, you're right down to the wire. The tension is simply huge. And then the weather changes. In both these cases, the weather changes. And many people miss this. God uses a strong east wind to pull the water apart. And on a wind, the birds fly in, the quail fly in. And there's good food to eat. And manna falls from heaven, honey flakes of oats, and water flows from a rock. And with all this provision, the people are sustained in their journey. But if they think they're at the promised land, yet they're not. Patience, these folks need to be Presbyterians. Patience, they're not here yet. There are going to be more obstacles. But they've been fed with the strength that they need to face whatever it is that comes their way, equipped for whatever it is by God. So the road trip continues, and they do reach the promised land, their destination. They are told where it is in this particular case, and they reach there, and they settle into the land, and there are no great and significant stories for another series of centuries until around 700 BC when the moral and the spiritual life of the people settled into the land begins to decline. The numbers of those who are faithful to God as in our day and age in the West, in our nation, but throughout the Western world, not so by the way in Africa, not so in China, but the numbers have shrunk and the church seems to be weak. The numbers of faithful are low and at that particular time, Indeed, the integrity of God's people is being lost. They are not holding to what they know to be true. And so God sets them on another journey. This time we call the journey a journey into exile. Seventy years, God says, you are not going to be in the promised land. Like Adam and Eve, they are thrown out of the Garden of Eden. And a journey begins to a place they do not want to be. In exile, in the midst of the pagan nation, the greatest empire of the day, Babylon. And the question there in Babylon is this, and it's raised in our passage of Scripture that we heard a few moments ago by the prophet Jeremiah. The question is, to, is this, as to whether they're to think of this trip into Babylon as if it were a temporary camping trip 
just go and put up with it. It's going to be uncomfortable, but that's where you are. You can grumble to your heart's content, and it'll pass. Or do they settle in as if, in fact, they are uh, immigrants to a new land? Even though it's temporary, 70 years is a couple of generations, you're not just going to sit around. You're going to get involved wherever you are in the situation you're in. That's the question. Which one is it to be? And Jeremiah has no uncertain answer. He knows exactly what the answer is. There are prophets who say, just grin and bear it and just sit and mope during this time. But Jeremiah says, no, no. Settle in and play your part in the land where I'm taking you. Listen again to what we heard a few moments ago. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon on the road, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat what they produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons, give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there, do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. You are not to just hunker down together and mope about your misfortune, but you're to settle in in a way that you can be productive for God wherever it is that God has placed you. God at work in this moment of transition in their lives. And as with Abraham and as with Moses, God promises to take care of them. And at verse 10, we read this, for thus says the Lord, only when in Babylon 70 years are completed will I visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For surely I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for your welfare, not for harm, to give you a future with hope. Then when you call upon me, renewed in faith, and come and pray to me, renewed in faith, I will hear you. When you search for me, renewed in faith by this time of exile, this road trip into exile, you will find me. If you seek me with all your heart, renewed in faith, I will let you find me, says the Lord. And then I will restore your fortunes, will gather you from all the peoples and the places that I've driven you, says the Lord. I'll bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. And this too actually happens, just as with the promises to Abraham, one person having the most remarkable effect on all of human history. Promises made, by the way, in a scripture that came together, as I'm about to say, at the latest 500 years before the birth of Christ, when, when the people of Israel were nothing. Those promises given that Abraham's descendants would be something spectacular. So here in Babylon, Promises are made for God to be with his people. It may well have been thought that exile was just to be this place of hanging around, waiting for whatever the next thing is. But actually, God was deeply at work and profoundly at work in Babylon. As far as scholars can understand, it was precisely in this time of exile, this time of transition, on the road to a place where they did not want to be, that all the ancient stories of Israel were collected what is basically our Old Testament. They were collected and shaped to become the foundation of our Bible, the Old Testament Scripture. Where was this? In the temple in Jerusalem, the place of glory? No. In the place where they did not want to be in a moment of transition. And that's 
that series of stories coming together into the Bible carried with them back to their homeland when the time would come. So this is part of the Old Testament story, but the road trips continue into the New Testament as well. The story of Jesus is a series of road trip stories, south to Bethlehem, being carried by Mary, one with Joseph to be born in Bethlehem, going further south to Egypt, back into that land where this time the baby would be protected from the evils of King Herod, then north to Galilee and to be raised in Nazareth and in that whole region then to wander around as an itinerant preacher to preach, and then south, all of it a journey to Jerusalem, and that road trip down the Mount of Olives on Palm Sunday, and then up the hill to Calvary where Jesus would die. God there in all of this, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And then we have more road trips and sea trips with the Apostle Paul, the great missionary of the early church, spreading the good news of Jesus from the ancient city of Jerusalem to what then was the modern city of Rome, from the ancient world to the modern, the gospel being spread. And then the last road trip that I want to share with you. This time it's Easter Sunday morning. Two friends of Jesus are walking from the city of Jerusalem to a village called Emmaus, and they're sad. As I told the children, they've seen their leader, Jesus, crucified, tortured, put to death, buried. And then, then against all the odds, there are stories that begin to emerge on that Easter Sunday morning about the empty tomb and the hope that Jesus is alive. The stories are beginning to spread, and they don't know what to think. They are pretty hopeless. They don't like being in this place of transition. They don't like being on the road. But it's precisely when they are on the road, they're leaving Jerusalem. Who knows what they're doing? Just getting away from it all. It's then on that road as they're talking together with no confidence in their hearts that a stranger out of the blue walks up beside them and begins a conversation. And we read of this conversation in Luke 24. The stranger said to them, what are you discussing with each other while you walk along? They stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place there in these days? He asked them, What things? They replied, The things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped... There are no more mournful words in Scripture. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things took place. Moreover, some women of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back and told us that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. Then he said to them, Oh, how foolish you are, how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures as they came near the village to which they were going. He walked ahead as if he were going on. It could have been just another road story. He walked ahead as if he were going on, but they urged him strongly, 
saying, stay with us, because it is almost evening and the day is now nearly over. So he went into them and stayed with them. When he was at table with them, he took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized Jesus alive on the road, leaving Jerusalem to Emmaus, a place of insignificance, but on that road, they meet the risen Christ, never to die again, dying once for their sins, never to die again. In the Bible, lots of things happen on the road in times of transition. Some of them are hard. We would not ask for them. The uncertain is always there. The unfamiliar is always there. The unknown things abound. Obstacles and challenges are all over the place. Roadblocks here, there, and everywhere. They threaten our life and they threaten our joy. Hard decisions need to be made on the road. Do we believe or don't we believe? What is it that we really believe or don't believe? Are we going to mope, hang around, or just get on with it? Are we going to stay in our inner circle or even in this time of transition, expand our circle outside our group? Are we going to grow in faith? Or are things just going to sort of remain the same? It is, my friends, precisely on the road that God gives his people freedom from slavery. It is precisely on the road that he gives them hope instead of hopelessness. It is precisely on the road that he opens up to them new doors of possibility that they could not possibly have conceived of before. It is on the road that he makes to them promises that he absolutely keeps and on which in a shaking world our lives can depend. It is on the road that he reveals Jesus to us in ways that we had never fully seen before. This is my prayer for you and for me on the road, that all these experiences of Almighty God, our Creator and Redeemer, would be true, truly experienced every step of the way. Let's pray. Almighty God, we bow before you humbled by your grace and by your persistence in drawing close to us on the road. We're all on different parts of the road. As a church, maybe on one road, but as individuals on different parts of the road, on the journey. And we ask that you would give us enormous confidence that there is no part of the road in which you will not be on it with us. And that you long to give us, as your people, a future and a hope. Hear our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.